Net-A-Porte presents. This episode contains material which some people may find upsetting. Pieces of Me, My Life in Seven Garments is a podcast series brought to you by Porter. Pieces of Me is about celebrating women and the power of fashion, because clothes are never just clothes. Zainab Salbi is the very definition of inspirational. A woman's rights activist, author and speaker, she grew up in liberal 1970s Iraq, a gilded childhood that was blighted when her family became closely entwined with Saddam Hussein. Her mother, with the best intentions to protect her, arranged a marriage for Zainab with a man in America so she could escape Iraq and the regime. With bitter irony, this man abused her. And once again, she had to flee for her safety, only to find herself cut off from her family for nine long years when the Gulf War broke out. At age 23, when she learned about the horrors of Bosnian rape camps, she promptly set off for the region with the man who was her new husband. This unconventional honeymoon led to her forming the humanitarian organization Women for Women International in 1993, which she led for 18 years. She says it was working with so many women in war zones that gave her a different perspective on beauty. And she begins by reflecting on her relationship with her mother. My name is Zainab Selby, and these are the pieces of me. First piece of clothing that was very important for me as a child was an orange t-shirt. I don't remember how old I was, maybe fourth grade, third grade, but I loved that t-shirt. We bought it from Thailand and that was the piece I chose. My mother didn't allow me to choose many pieces all my life, but that was the piece I chose. And it was like an orange cotton, obviously, but it has the pocket, was a plastic pocket. So it's a three, see-through orange plastic pocket, which I loved. And, and then we go back home to Iraq. And I'm like in love with this. And I'm one of those people who, when I like a garment, I just keep on wearing it over and over and over again until I get sick and tired of it. Like, you know, that's sort of how I wear clothes. So I love that piece. And one day we got invited by Saddam Hussein's wife for a women's gathering. And my cousin, who was staying with us, and she was exactly the same age as I was, and my mom said, let's go together. And we were like going through my closet. And, you know, my mom was helping us what to wear because this is the president's wife. And my mother gives her my orange shirt. And my heart just sank. I remember it so vividly. I remember the closet, the bedroom, everything. And she's like, hey, you wear this, Nadia. And of course, I didn't say anything. You will look bad if you say anything. And I'm an Arab, and Arab culture is all about hospitality and generosity and sharing. So I stayed silent. But it just broke my heart that my mother gave her my favorite shirt. And it created something. And then I later asked my mom, why did you do that? And my mom said, but she's the beautiful one. And that was, you know, I'm sure my mom thought that I was beautiful, but she also told me that my cousin was the beautiful one, right? So it created an insecurity in me, sort of an injury that it created that actually I spent a very long time 
to relate with beauty in a healthy way. And so it sort of set me on an unhealthy path, I would say, with the relationship, not only with clothes, but with beauty. Am I beautiful? Am I not? And what is the role of clothing and what we wear in defining my beauty or hiding it? Zainab paints an idyllic picture of childhood full of laughter and parties, but as Saddam Hussein became an ever more threatening presence in her family's world, young Zainab was determined to resist. In the 70s, my childhood was actually a very happy childhood. I was the first born to my parents. My, my mom was a teacher, biology teacher, and my father was not only a commercial pilot, he was also the head of Iraqi civil aviation, and he was Saddam Hussein's personal pilot. So we actually knew Saddam Hussein. I grew up calling him uncle, and I knew his wife and his kids and all of that. I remember actually... In that childhood, there was joy. We had a nice garden and there were a lot of parties in these gardens. And my mother loved fashion. And she used to actually make her own clothes as well. And then she would like cut the patterns and make all of these things. And like she was really into, I grew up in that world of it's important what you wear. And then Saddam, when he took over in 1979, the war with Iran started very fast. And so that same garden, it sort of transformed into a place where where my mother would sit with her girlfriends in the middle of the garden and whisper, and they would all cry. And so there's a transformation from the laughters to the cries in, in the 80s. And then we became Saddam Hussein's friends. So the whole country knew us as Saddam Hussein's friends. And that sort of left us in an odd place. And thus the title of my memoir, Between Two Worlds, because we were afraid of him and his family. We were not from their tribe or clans or any of that. And the people were afraid of us because we are friends of the president. In the 80s, I grew up very close to Saddam. And my mom would tell me, smile when he smiles, laugh when he laughs, cry when he cries. It's sort of these were the, the rules of my life. He had given us a farmhouse to go every single weekend. And literally every single weekend we would go and we would dress up the whole nine yards, and we wait for him. So when he comes, if he chooses to come, at any moment he chooses to come, we are all dressed up and in perfection. By growing up so close to power, I actually saw the corruption of power in front of me as a teenager. And the corruption, I don't mean only money and business, the corruption of moral values, how everyone sucked up to him, how everyone compromise themselves to him so you please him because sometimes you're afraid, sometimes you want his approval, sometimes you want something from him, from that power that he has, right? But the complicity and the complacency we all had played in the game, even though he was an authoritarian, fear-driven dictator, there was a life and death aspect of it. And everything about my life was taken over by that relationship. So I wasn't allowed to have any friends. You see your life from this free child to being limited. So I resisted in different ways, actually through my clothes as well. And that that was defining in my teenage life is how do you resist in subtle ways? Because you can't resist in loud ways. I was wearing all black or gray, very dark, 
and I refused to wear makeup. And we would go to his wife's parties where all the women and their daughters are wearing the nine yards and are fully made up, except me. And my mom would be embarrassed of me. Here is like the odd girl coming. And I remember one time, my mom, we were sitting in one of his wife's parties. And I remember my mom would come to me in the middle of the party. And she's like, would you please smile and show your teeth and then clap sincerely? I'm like, okay, mother, don't, you know, now you're, now you're clapping, you clap, but you just hate everything. You know, they are rejecting you because you're not fitting. I am rejecting them because I can't stand them. And we're all imprisoned in this prison, in this game. And in that time, as I think I was 17, I fall in love with a guy. So I was like, this is my path to get away. I will fall in love with this guy and we will escape. I had a very romantic uh, concept of it. And it's all working out, right? And, you know, I'm like, I'm marrying this guy. My father's like, what are you doing? He's like, not one of us. I am like, absolutely, I have to marry him. I love him. Da, da, da. We're talking now I'm 80, 18 or so. And so I get engaged with him, with all my resisting self, right? So my father hosted this event, and I, with my fiancé, come. And Saddam was not going to show up, but my fiancé kept on saying, is he going to come? Is he going to come? With an excitement, and it was like my heart dropped. I fall in love with this guy because he's going to help me escape from this misery, golden prison I am in. I get so disappointed. And this, like, I, I oh, was devastated that my, my dreams were all fake, that he actually just wanted to get in. So I break up the engagement. So I felt really bad that I've embarrassed them because I made a big deal out of it. Obviously, Saddam had to approve my engagement. And there was a moment of surrender, of saying, okay, I tried to resist. It didn't work. So I'm giving up. And I go to my mother, and I'm like tearing up as I'm speaking now, because I go to my mother and say, I am sorry I did this. Gave you such a hard time. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will become a good daughter. So whatever, I will dress up the way you want me to dress up. I will do whatever you want me to do. And she was so happy. And she made me a, a pink the dress. And we go to one of these parties, one of Saddam's party. And I'm wearing this colorful tafta dress. And it's not me. I mean, I look at myself in the mirror and it's not, I had gone, like that was just my body in this dress, you know. And I go to the party and I visibly, I fit with everyone's look. But emotionally, I felt like a clown in that party. I felt everyone was staring at me because I looked like a clown. And so it was the outfit of my surrender, but it's... Obviously, such an important, I mean, like, I tear up just thinking about it. Um, because when the soul surrender, there's like a, a death to, uh, to a part of us when you no longer, when you say, okay, I'll obey by the rules of society. And I give up on my own inner voice. So I give up to my mom's uh, will 
and wear whatever she wants me to wear and all of that. And she's very excited, I have to say. <laughs> you know, it's like now she could, I was her only daughter. I mean, there are two brothers, uh, but I was the only girl. And so she now can dress me up the way she wants me. And, you know, there's a part of, I think my mother, I, I don't know if it exists with all mothers, but my mother had to sacrifice part of her life. And then she also lived the other part through me, which was frustrating. Anyway, comes one year after this breakup of that engagement, my mom comes to me and tells me that you have a, a marriage proposition uh, to a man in America. And she said, please accept. Now, this mother who told me that I have to be strong and independent, but she also told me that I have to always, like, choose the person I want to be with the rest of my life. So she was, this is a very liberal family. She's really the first feminist I met. You know, she told me never to learn how to cook or clean because no man should expect me to know how to do that just because I'm a woman. So this is like, she told me to be free. And there was this dynamic of fear. It's like two paradigms that were rubbing against each other in my childhood. So she tells me, you have to accept this arranged marriage. Please accept this arranged marriage. It's not like my hands were forced, you know, but please accept this arranged marriage. And I'm confused and I'm like, what are you talking about? And then she starts crying and crying hysterically saying, please, please, please accept. And my father saying, this is just wrong. You shouldn't do that. Why are you doing that to her? And she's like over my dead body. I want her to get out. She has to accept this marriage and go out to America. At the end of the day, I said yes. And I said yes, honestly, exclusively to make my mother happy and to be a good daughter. That was the only reason. So she gets very excited. And the house turns upside down as she prepares for that wedding and particularly that wedding dress. She designs it. I actually don't remember having anything to do with it, really. I, I don't remember engaging in the design of the dress or what do I want or anything like that. I did not relate to that marriage. It was hers, her decision, her dream, her plan. It's just like, okay, mother, I will do whatever you want me to do. But she designs a gorgeous dress based on Iraqi tradition, which women would wear a long, puffy zwafs. They are pants, but they're so baggy, they look like skirts, basically. And then on top of them, they're like this long vests. So the vests are open, like tight in the front and the top. And then they're open, cut, so the, the puffiness of the pants will show out of the, the vest, basically. And that's a very traditional, very old Iraqi traditional outfit for women. And they would wear it like in salons. That's what women would wear in women's salons, you know, back in the kingdoms. That's what my grandmother would wear, all of that. And it was uh, off-white silk, and she ordered the silk. I mean, this was a very thought-through process. You know, she ordered the silk from Thailand, I believe. So it was a thick silk, and she had all these embroideries of Arabic poems and Arabic designs. And there's a V-neck cut, and with the sleeves, and with the tail of the dress, it was gorgeous. My head 
dress was not the typical headdress. It was actually also like a princess one. It's like a, let's say a crown, but it's not a crown, but it's from fabric. And it had all these golden and pearl embroideries on it. Just like a 1001 night, basically kind of a look. And I love that dress, I have to say. I, I actually did like that dress, even though I had no say in it, basically. So we come to America and the husband-to-be and his family are waiting for me and my family. And I just first look at him and I get anxiety in my heart. And and that anxiety does not go away. It feels wrong. It does I don't like the man. And my father, who was with us, he's like, this is wrong. This is wrong. And my mother would cry, no, over my dead body. And I remember on the wedding day, I'm dressed up as a beautiful bride. I have to say, I actually liked how I looked. And we're in the car, in the highway, going to the wedding. There were two cars, and my father stops the car, and he says, this is just wrong. It's just wrong. And she, my mom, cries, and it's like, absolutely no. She cannot go back with me to Iraq. And so at one point, I tell them, no, 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 no. I'll make that decision. Just stop fighting. We arrive. I go. I take him on the side, the guy, and I tell him, look, I have my ambition. I have my career I, that, that I want to build. I'm a strong woman. I want to go back to school. I want to finish my cooling. I'm like, I'm not going to cook for you or clean for you. I tell him all the things my mother taught me all my life. And he said, absolutely. You have my word. Everything is okay. It was 10 minutes of discussion, I come back and say, okay, that's fine. I'm going to marry him. That's okay. Ultimately, I'm still trying to make my mother happy. And in the wedding ceremony, in the tradition, the imam, he keeps on asking you, do you accept this man as your husband? But no, I don't get asked in our tradition one time. The questions keep on repeating themselves 12 times. And I'm not supposed to answer until the 13th time. And In this process, every time he's asking me, I'm like thinking, should I say no? Can I say no? Can I say no? And comes the 13th time, which is the time to answer. And I say yes. And upon saying yes, my younger brother cries and storms out of the room. My father is crying. My other brother, middle brother is crying. My mother is crying. And I'm crying. And his family gets upset. The groom's family, they're like, is this a funeral or a wedding? They get upset with us because something is wrong for our family. And and then you go ahead with a wedding party and it's a huge party. 400 people comes in it that I don't know who they are. Again, I feel like the clown. Because I'm like, again, I'm living a life that was not mine. And in the wedding night, you know, like I'm shy. This is a strange man as far as I knew this. I've only met him two weeks ago, basically. And I am not comfortable. And all what I remember is him just trying to penetrate me. There was no kissing, no fooling around, no caressing, no holding, no hugging. He was just trying to enter Uh, me and I couldn't and he starts shouting at me that night and he's like what kind of a woman you are what is this you're probably not a virgin like he just horrible 
things. And I was shocked, you know, just shocked. I see my parents the next morning. I tell my mother, I was like, I don't know what happened, but this is what happened. She said, oh, don't worry, it will be okay. Anyway, and they leave. They go back home to Iraq. They keep me in America as I go to my honeymoon in Hawaii. And Iraq invades Kuwait. And that was the last time I see my family for nine years after. Like, I didn't see them for nine years. In the meantime, that man that I end up marrying was a horrible man, horrible, horrible man. And I learned later that he hated Saddam and that getting me was like getting Saddam's trophy, you know, and three months staying with him and I woke out of the marriage. And it wasn't only walking out of the marriage with the two suitcases I have of designer's clothes and and jewelry with $400 in my pocket. It wasn't only walking out of the marriage. It was walking out, something got broken between me and my mother from me. I felt betrayed by the woman I loved the most in my life because I did not understand why she did this to me. I tried to play a good girl. I followed the rules and this happens to me and they leave me in America alone with no plan B (laughs) and I can't communicate with them to say, what the heck have you done to me? So I leave him And I make a vow to myself that I shall build myself and my life on my own. And I will one day go back home, but not now. And I shall help one day women back home, but not today. And that's my new chapter of my life starts in America. By this point, Zainab is only 20 years old. Alone, but free, she's determined to make the most of this new start. She finds her way to George Mason University in Virginia, where she studies sociology and women's studies, learning about the world beyond Iraq and the feminist movement. For the first time, Zainab hears about the conflict in Bosnia and Herzegovina. She remembers her vow to herself to one day help other women. She can't go to Iraq, so she'll start where she can make a difference. And I decided that, okay, I shall do something about it. I didn't know where Bosnia was. I did not know any of, I didn't know anything about their culture, their language, nothing, nothing, nothing. I knew there was an injustice and that I am living in a country that gives me freedom to speak and I must use that freedom. It is my responsibility as a human being. And with this, I was 23 years old now, three years only in America, And I start this organization called Women for Women International. And I'm now going to war zones to then help women get financial aid and get emotional support through women in different parts of the world who are sponsoring them. And so I am now embracing the whole idea that my identity should not be defined by my clothes and no one should treat me differently just because I'm a woman. I go back to my black outfits <laughs> and now I'm wearing suits, men-like suits, black uh, jackets and pants and white shirts and I want to be seen for my brain, not by my look. I was 25 years old at that time that President Clinton 
chooses me as one of six Americans to give an award for their work in Bosnia. And I wear this suit, black pants, black jacket, white shirt. I go and I was very adamant about choosing that outfit because I knew I was going to the White House. I knew there's going to be press and I wanted to be treated as an individual and not as a woman or a man, to be seen for my actions and my values and nothing else. And that was a very important outfit because, well, it's so it's carried so many stories for me. It carried the stories of feminism, but I defined narrowly defined feminism as also rejecting the concept of beauty. But that was a signifying outfit, and I continued in that look and in that attitude for many, many years in my life until the turning point was until I actually started working with so many women in the very war zones I was working in, Bosnia, Kosovo, Rwanda, Congo, Afghanistan. And every time I would go and ask them, what do you want me to bring you next time? Here I am like embracing the Xena warrior princess attitude. And they would tell me, we want lipstick. They wanted beauty items. And I was like, what? Don't you want to become warriors in here? What lipstick? Why do you wear lipstick? And I remember one woman told me, and she was in Bosnia. She said, because in my beauty is my resistance. War is trying to kill. These soldiers are trying to make me so afraid to drop every element of my life, including the sense of beauty. So you have to understand that in wearing that lipstick is the simplest act where I can still feel beautiful. And that was a major turning point in my understanding of beauty. It's like, wow, I rejected it because I thought it's oppressive. But actually, It's a major tool of our identities, not to be dismissed, not to be ridiculed, nor to be abused, but to be cherished and celebrated. And so it turned my understanding from that black suit at the White House to actually understanding that maybe it's time for me to embrace my own beauty. Imagine I'm start working, start wearing nice clothes as I go to war zones out of respect for women. And one of my favorite outfits, and I actually have a picture of it, like with me wearing it with bullets, uh, like with a wall full of shrapnels behind me in Bosnia. And it's a, a white tank top sort of showed a little bit, you know, low cut, uh, not too much, but low cut, and a yellow Kate Spade blouse, a soft one. And I wore that not only in war zones. I actually, during that same time of my life, I was testifying in the House and the Senate and, and, and the U.S. Congress and the Senate floors. And when you're testifying in these Senate floors, you have to also decide what to wear. And I remember wearing that outfit. I wanted to show up in my authentic self. And I don't care. They have to take me seriously for my voice. 
I can just imagine Zainab in the US Senate like a beacon of light in her yellow jacket sitting next to the upright military experts, making a case for the rights of women and challenging what the US was doing in Afghanistan at the time. After leading Women for Women International for 18 years, Zainab wanted a new challenge and the opportunity to use storytelling to connect with more women throughout the world. What better way than to launch your very own TV show, beaming into 22 countries across the Arab world? So I decided to migrate from the world of humanitarian work to the media world, but still focus on women's rights. And I started the Nida show, which implies the calling of women in Arabic. And it's a show that was aimed at acknowledging the voices of Arab women, Arab and Muslim women, showing the possibilities, showing and featuring the possibilities of change from within the culture, new narratives within the culture, and help promote small bridges between women in the region, rather than only the big bridges between the Western world and different parts of the world, which is what my older life was. So I launched the show on TLC Arabia, and that time, I started paying attention to the importance of outfits, <laughs> the symbolism of it. And so choosing the outfit was important for the first show, especially the first show was launched with the first interview uh, that Oprah Winfrey ever gave to the entire Middle East. So it's big deal, huge deal. And I choose to wear an abaya. An abaya is like a, a traditional robe that both women and men wear in the Middle East. Uh, you probably would be familiar with them because usually you see them in the Gulf countries, women wearing black abaya on their shoulders, basically, and cover their hair. What I chose is a white abaya embroidered in, again, Islamic designs and embroideries in black. But under it was tight pants, high heels, all black and a shaven bare head. So you see, it was sort of trying to combine the women I have become, the free women that I have become, with the tradition, while wearing my own tradition. And it was a big deal, actually, because it, it was authentic to me. My relationship, if you go back to that orange T-shirt as a child and all the outfits that narrated my own evolution of beauty, they were all, as I said, again, external, externally impacted. This shirt, that dress, this, all of these things. And I really did not believe I was a beautiful woman until a few years ago. I am 50 years old right now. I honestly did not know I am beautiful until mid-40s, basically. And the outfit that represents this moment of my life where I am seeing my beauty from inside and they sort of as a reverse process. I'm not buying clothes to make me feel beautiful. I feel beautiful and I get the clothes that will allow that beauty to shine. And Donna Karen, who also is a good friend, you know, she's like, I notice you always wear baggy clothes or uh, you don't accentuate your body. And she starts showing me 
how that they are different items. Some of them are baggy, some of them are tights. In different items, you can celebrate your body and yourself no matter what shape you are in and how you look. And where do you, how do you show your femininity but still show your power? I embrace that style. And when I buy my clothes, I buy them with consciousness. Are they ethical? Did they treat the people who made it well? Because mostly it's women who make it. Did they source well? Are they organic? Are they fair trade? I ask these questions and each one of them is thought through. And I can go the sexy woman or I can go the sexy warrior. It doesn't matter for me. But I have to tell you, these days I am, for whatever reason, I like to only wear white. I'm just in my white face, basically. White is my color and feels so good. It's embracing the color I like. It doesn't matter what's out there. And instead of feeling like a clown before, wearing the odd clothes, uh, now I feel like a shining star. It doesn't matter if they think I'm beautiful or they think I'm ugly. I actually really don't care what I can tell you. is a connection between me and my heart and me and my soul is so profound and so grounding that it's the most... Imp- I, I walk with that relationship. It's, uh, it's where I get my strength and my love from. But it's such an inside job. And my clothes right now are in service of that beauty that I have been able to see and witness within me. Zainab continues to inspire and has been honoured with multiple awards for her humanitarian work. With now five books to her name, she continues to write about her experiences. Zainab's graciousness and courage just floors me every time I hear her speak. She has witnessed the horrors of war and domestic abuse firsthand and yet is still so passionate and driven on her mission to unite and liberate women. And she speaks with such candor about her very personal journey to celebrate her own beauty. Zainab Salbi, thank you. Head to Netaporte slash Porter Podcasts slash Pieces of Me to see pictures of the pieces Zainab discussed today and to listen to previous episodes. Pieces of Me was brought to you by Porter and Chalk and Blade. Presented by Sarah Bailey and produced by Laura Hyde. The executive producer was Ruth Barnes. So I have to say it's so interesting narrating the story from from Outfit's perspective because they really hold these moments in my life.